Welcome to Tampering with Sam Amick and Joe Varden. This beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. To be able to bring uh-huh. people together. Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executives in the league is stop talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Right or wrong? Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. Awkward to even talk about it. I can't even mention teams anymore. Actually, what I like to play with Kevin Durant. Trial you want with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. I tamper with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Hello and welcome to the Tampering Podcast at The Athletic. I'm Sam Amick, NBA Insider. Here as always with my guy Joe Varden, fellow NBA Insider, fellow quarantined basketball reporter. What's up, sir? How are you? I'm doing good. Still uh, coming down uh, from the high of the last dance. (laughs) Yeah, we got a fun one for you today. Listen, I know there's a ton of quote-unquote content out there relating to the last dance, the ESPN you know, highly anticipated documentary about the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls, kind of the Michael Jordan story, but not completely. It's the story of all of those guys, the Phil Jacksons, the Dennis Rodmans, the Scottie Pippins, Steve Kerr's all the way down the line. Uh, I'm going to say, Joe, like in this media landscape with no games and everybody trying to take a bite out of the same apple, uh, so to speak, we did okay today. We have a fantastic guest on the show Andy Thompson, a longtime NBA entertainment producer, one of the executive producers of The Last Dance, is going to join us. Uh, I couldn't be more fired up for a couple of reasons. For one, as I told you off the air, you know he's one of those people, Andy is, who I've gotten to know pretty well on the road and just is a fantastic guy, a fantastic person. I've enjoyed him quite a bit. Um, now, uh, some of the listeners might not know he's you know, he's got plenty of basketball roots. He is the brother of former number one pick, former Laker, Michael Thompson, the uncle of Warriors all-star Clay Thompson. But what's neat about this, Joe, is that it's like, for me anyway, all these years, you got Andy in the background, Andy in the shadows, Andy doing really fantastic work for NBA entertain, uh, Entertainment. And he would not, he just, he wasn't the kind of guy that would grab the spotlight. I'd had times where I wanted to write a story about Andy and he wasn't really feeling it. And now for me, I had no idea that honestly, that he was part of this project. And then you learn that Andy back in 1997, early after the the Bulls win that 97 championship, he is the one who came up with this idea for the last dance. And he is the one who went to Adam Silver, who at that time, uh, you know, had, was certainly not commissioner, and it just started, I believe, with NBA Entertainment, and says, yeah, and I'm stealing perspective that I've heard elsewhere from Andy, and says, you know, we have got to chronicle this Bulls team, because at that time, everybody knew unofficially that they were going to break up. It was Phil Jackson's last year, Scottie Pippen trade rumors, and Andy says to Adam Silver, yo, we got to get this on on wax, so to speak, and they did it, and then they got to wait this entire time, so we're going to get into to all of that, but for you and I, before we talk to Andy, uh, you know, what was last night like? I first two episodes, I enjoyed them quite a bit. Um, so, Joe, what was your viewing experience like? Everybody in the basketball world was kind of in the same headspace last night, which was fun. I think it was one of those rare moments, especially considering what's happening in the country, where we we all were focused on the same thing. What was it like for you? I think uh, a couple things um, like everybody else. I was on my couch, uh, totally captivated by it and enthralled with it. Um, I put my phone down. Uh, I, I was not tweeting along with this because um, I really wanted to soak it up for myself. So that was the first thing. Um, my son, who's going to be 10 in June, uh, was finishing up spring break and, and school. Well, quote unquote, school restarted today. Um, but it's just, you know, learning at the kitchen table. Uh, but he stayed up till about 1030 and he is not a sports nut like you and I are, but, but he also kind like, he kind of gets it and he loved it. Um, so I thought that was cool. Um, I, two years ago had read, a had read David Halberstam's book, which I'm going to look it up here really quick because I have bad memory. Uh, yes, it's called Playing for Keeps, uh, Michael Jordan and the World He Made. And um, a bunch of this stuff is in that book. And so I can't wait 
to talk to Andy about that particularly. Um, and it was just cool, like to have read a lot about this and then see it come alive on the, on the video. Um, and then my final thought was, well, I have a bunch more, but my, my final thought as far as watching it was, um, you know, I, I did, I had not seen anything, not one thing about this, um, it, while I was working on on a story in which we went and asked 25 people uh, what it was like to meet Michael Jordan. Um, and it was cool because so many of the people who were on camera last night turned out to be in our story. Sure. Uh, and so so that was both gratifying and then also it was great to kind of know what they had said to me. And, and we put that out last week and, and people read it and, and uh, said nice things. And then to watch them begin to explain, you know, either what Michael was like earlier in his career or beginning to tell the tale that 97 and 98 season was, uh, was great. It was a great experience and, uh, it seems like it was universally well received, um, as it should have been. No, I'm with you on all of that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to take your lead when it comes to the focusing, not being distracted, not looking at your phone. I, I wasn't on my phone, the mistake I might've made and, I'm fairly confident that my uh, beloved neighbors probably won't hear this podcast is we did a, a bit of a social distancing in the kind of the neighbor's driveway. He's got a big screen and you crank it up. And so I was around a few other people um, and I love them as people, but a few of them, I'm not going to name names. They, they, they were asking questions uh, throughout the first 20 minutes and I'm sitting there going, okay, we paused it about 10 times and I'm, and I'm yelling <laughs> at the guy whose house it is going, okay, you can't keep talking while the documentary is still going. You have to hit pause. Like, what are we doing here? So I'm going to have to switch up my uh, viewing habits. But um, no, we're going to get into all of that and a lot more with Andy, who uh, we're going to call up here in a second. And before we get to this conversation that we're looking forward to, got to make sure the listeners know uh, that the 90-day free trial is still alive and well at The Athletic. So if you were on the fence about joining us, uh, I think we've proven ourselves, you know, time and again with this incredible staff of high-level writing, especially now when there aren't even games and we're still, I think, pumping out really good stuff. If you need a test run, you can go ahead and sign up. 90-day free trial uh, can get out anytime if you want. I highly doubt you're going to want to, but we would love you to join us. So make sure you check that out. Uh, listen, you've been a wanted man lately, Andy. So uh, we'll hop right into it, brother. We. Uh, you got, got on the line we uh, we already kind of put everything on the tee for you joe and i talked for a few minutes about the uh the doc itself the the well-known backstory at this point i mentioned that that in all my years of enjoying getting to know you uh on the playoff road and, and just the different nba media travels that this kind of subculture that we're a part of um you know i'll be honest with you i, I knew the you know your, your resume was deep i never knew the backstory on you being the guy, the person who planted this seed, who went to Adam Silver and said, you know, that this Bulls team is too special to not be, you know, archived in, in history. Um, but the difference, I think, between us catching you today versus everybody who caught you before today is now it's been shared with the world. Two episodes were out last night. We all had our different versions of, of viewing parties, and, and you mentioned off the air when we said hello a second ago that there was a sense of relief for you to, to finally have some of it out there. So give us the fresh perspective. What was last night like for you? Where were you? How did you take a, take this whole thing in? Well, I've been watching this thing for the last two years on a laptop because part of my responsibility that I have with working with Mike Tolan and, and, and Jason here was – I knew the footage of 98 better than anybody else. So myself and Dion Kokoros, who's another producer at the NBA, and a couple of other senior guys would always watch their rough cuts, and we would you know, give them notes, share notes, give us some insight. Maybe there's a shot or two they missed. There was a storyline that they're overlooking. So for two and a half years of going back and forth with the producers and the director, and like I said, watching it on a laptop or the very best, you know, a, a home computer, to see it in its glory on my 70-inch screen in the basement where all of the HD 4K resolution was in full bloom was just amazing. To me, I was, I was blown away how, how well the, the images and the sound just held up over the years. And for me, it was a huge relief to see it 
out. It's, it looks beautiful. Uh, the, in, all the interviews were great. Uh, so, you know, you never know the final product, how it's going to turn out and how everyone's going to receive it. But I watched it with my family and my kids are 19 and 18 and they loved it. And that's a huge part of the relief for me because they're your biggest critics, right? Your, your sure. wife and your kids. They're going to sure. tell you if it's good or not. And my son and my daughter and my wife, they really loved it. And that's the audience that we're really going after because the average basketball fan, you know, you're preaching to the choir. Those guys are going to watch this. But it's the casual fan. It's the the kids who are 22, 25, who only heard about Jordan through their dad or their uncles or, you know, maybe on Instagram or, excuse me, YouTube. Now they get a chance to see it. Now they get a chance to live that era and just the greatness of the Bulls and Michael Jordan. So for me, hugely satisfying. No, I can't imagine. I mean, Joe and I can relate to a tiny degree, just the creative process, right? You work on a story, you work on something that takes quite some time and and then it comes out and there's like this cathartic feeling of sharing it with the world. But this is, I don't, I mean, I, good luck finding another example like this, where you shoot something, you know, back in 1997, 98, and then 22 years later, you got to wait. Um, let me hit the rewind button real quick, Andy, because we, we certainly, in the top, we did introduce you, but I want to, to give a little bit more backbone to this conversation. Um, you know, you are somebody who you played the game yourself at a very high level, play university of Minnesota. And I listened to your podcast with, with our buddy Sekou Smith at NBA.com. That was great. Um, and you went through all of it, which is you played with Kevin McHale and Trent Tucker at Minnesota. Um, you, you know, you have a, a knee injury that ends up cutting your playing days short, played overseas a bit, um, you know, obviously your relationship with your brother and, and your nephew being clay. Um, but when you get to this chapter of your life, you're talking 1987, you know, you're, you're now you look back. I mean, these are the glory days. These are incredible times that you were a big part of. Um, let's jump in there, uh, because I want to hear as much detail as possible about the day that you decided that this was the type of project that had to happen. And what was the first step? You didn't, I don't believe, have a relationship with Adam Silver at that time. And, and you had to, to try to pursue him. Um, you know, why did you feel the way you felt? And, and what steps did you take to, to try to get this thing off the ground? Well, ever since I started with NBA Entertainment, which is over 33 years ago, I didn't know anything about production. So I had to really just dive in and just do a lot of research and, and, and kind of catch up to the other PAs and producers and editors that were working there at the time. Fortunately, we only had 18 people on staff at NBA Entertainment, and I think there was only a total of 100 people total in the NBA offices. So it was just, the NBA was growing, and NBA Entertainment was in its infancy. It had only been created in 84 by David Stern. So by the time I got there in 87, we were trying to just figure out where, what next steps, and there, there was a pecking order. You, know, you became a PA, and then an editor, and then we called it a junior producer, then producer. But fortunately, you know, timing is everything, right? So in 87, I, I, I take the job, and Michael gets traded to the Lakers. The Lakers ended up going into the finals and playing against the Celtics. So as a PA, I'm, I'm sent a court with my camera crew running batteries and, and running tape stock. And I'm there in Boston as Magic, you know, gets the, the rolling little mini sky hook and wins game, was that game three, I think it was. So that, that was my genesis into the, into the game of basketball and NBA entertainment. And then from that point, in 1990, we took on a, a new contract with NBC. And part of the genius of David Stern was, we, in part of the contract, he, they had to agree to produce a half-hour show every Saturday that would promote the players in the game. That show was NBA Inside Stuff. I remember I was only three years into the, my, my tenure with the NBA. I was barely a junior producer, and they were like, Andy, you're going to be a producer on this show. You have to go out every week and think of content. You have to think of story ideas. You have to think of ways you're going to shoot it. And on top of that, you're also going to be working with talent. One of the talents that I work with primarily for the most part was Ahmad Rashad. So I'm really just terrified because not only am I not a real qualified producer, but I'm also responsible for coming up with content and thinking of ideas and, and then I have to bring it back and edit. Thank goodness Ahmad was 
was uh, was gracious. He knew I was I was kind of wet behind the ears, and I leaned on him heavily. And it was him who kind of said, "Well, you want to put the camera here? If you're working with me, you want to give me this much room and this, that, and the other. You don't don't tell me how to say this. I can say it my way." And he really guided me throughout that whole process. And in 1991, right before the Bulls played the Lakers for, the, for Michael Jordan's first championship, we're in Chicago. We interview, we're getting ready to interview Michael Jordan. One week before the finals, Ahmad turns to Michael and goes, hey, do you know whose brother that is? He goes, no. He says, that's Michael Thompson's little brother, Andy. And Michael looks at me and goes, really? Michael's your brother? And he went on to tell the story about he loved my brother and he changed his spelling of his name one day. And uh, his mom caught it on his notebook and she said, what are you doing spelling your name like this? And he said, because I love Michael. He's, he's got these puka shells that he wears around his his neck. He, he spells his name cool. And I couldn't believe this was the great Michael Jordan <laughs> talking about. He, he liked my brother and he respected right. my brother. Well, that right there was the genesis of our relationship. We became really good friends after that, and just through all the interviews I did with the, with Ahmad, which went into the Dream Team era, and then just a quick sidestep, I got a chance to produce all of the behind-the-scenes documentary access of the Dream Team and their run. So I spent seven weeks on the road with Michael and Bird and Magic shooting documentary style. And it was during that time that I realized that all of the – the projects and all of the, the content we were doing at the NBA had never been a documentary-style production. And I really love the day-to-day of being on buses, being on airplanes, being in the locker room, and you see sides of players you never see before. And I took all that information, and I said, when the Olympics was over, I said, if we ever get a chance to do this with the team, I want to do it. Anyway, fast forward, you know, the Bulls are getting ready to break up. Jordan has won his fifth championship. And by this time, Michael and I were pretty tight. And I always felt Michael really never got his due uh, as to what really made him tick, what drove him. And then the whole hysteria and the Beatle mania around the Bulls was never really captured because you got to be there day to day to see it. And I was really scared that the team was actually not going to come back. But over the summer, right, right. they made the deal. They were going to bring them back. And when they made that decision to bring them back, the timing was perfect because Adam Silver became the president of NBA Entertainment. I never met him. Didn't know me. He didn't know me. He brought in all the senior producers to get a feel of, of programming, what we should be working on, what we should be focusing on. And, and listen, man, I just said, I went for it. I said, Adam, this is the greatest player in the history of the game, maybe the most popular athlete on the planet, but the greatest dynasty could possibly go out on your watch. And it would be a, a, just a crime if we allowed this team to break up and we didn't try to document an entire year with the greatest player and the greatest team in NBA history, arguably. Adam loved the idea. He, um, he greenlit it on the spot in terms of, of something we should produce. And then he said that the next steps would be he would contact some of his relationships within the Bulls organization. And that was the genesis of where it all began and then Adam taking the idea and basically running with it. That's fantastic. So I was, uh, Andy, I was reading and getting ready for um, our conversation today. I was checking out um, an, uh, an interview for print you'd done with our friend Mark Stein at the New York Times. And you were saying there that um, – that I think this all came together in Paris on that Paris trip. Is that right? Yeah. Adam had to sell Phil and Michael. He had okay. already gotten Reinsdorf's blessing and he had to approach Phil and he had to approach Michael and he sealed the deal in Paris. So, and, and of course, like that's some of the early footage in the documentary. And so, um, as you had just described by this point, you had known Michael for, a very long time and you two had become friends. Um, but still you were there with the cameraman and the sound man behind the scenes at a, at a fairly tense moment already with what was going on with Scotty and everybody knew that Phil was done. Um, how long did it take for Michael and the rest of the bulls to become comfortable with you being there? Man, that's a good question because I remember writing, I kept a journal. I, I decided when we, when we, when we got the, 
the, the okay that we we're going to follow this team. I knew there was going to be a lot of stuff that I wanted to to remember, but I I knew I wouldn't. So I I kept a daily journal, and I remember writing down some of the the doubts and fears that I had. And we had a loose arrangement, right? It wasn't a a blessing like when Phil said, "Yeah, you guys can follow us." It was loosely. You guys show up from game some games that we can all agree on. Um, game by game, we'll figure out what the access is, and we'll just take it from there. And that was the loose arrangement we got. So the first four or five games, you know, we would show up and we'd be just like pretty much everybody else, except for on opening night. We, he did give us access to his pregame locker room speech, mm-hmm. and that I think you guys saw that last night. But from that point on, for about another month, we had to kind of negotiate when we can get into practices, if we can get any post-game locker room, if we can get a bus ride, if we can get a plane ride. It was like walking on eggshells every single time we showed up because, yes, Michael knew me. Phil barely knew me. So uh, it, it was really Phil's decision every time we showed up what kind of access we got. So I always feared that we would, the camera would be in the wrong place at the wrong time, that the boom microphone would pick up something that he didn't want to have recorded, that our, my line of sight, if I'm in the locker room, would distract him with his message to the players. So, man, I tell you, for the first month and a half, it, it, was, it was not fun. I can tell you that until, until about two months into the project, we, we had a real good feeling out of each other and, and things began to loosen up. That's fascinating. Uh, so you, as you said, you were there on opening night. So I'm, I'm sure it was your footage catching Michael making the joke uh, to Jerry Krause that uh, if, if he would have to take, uh, what was it? He'd, he'd have to take pills <laughs> to, uh, to grow tall enough to make, to, to go do layups. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and we go all the way in episode two. Um, you've got you have the footage of Scotty getting off the bus on the road, and then there's he's there in the press conference or the press conference at shoot around where he's basically saying that he's not going to come back um, and d- demands to be traded. I don't know if it was that bus ride specifically, but at some point in that time, there was um, there was a bus ride, and this is spelled out in David Howerstam's book on this, where. I mean, the, there's a vicious back and forth between Scotty and and Jerry. Um, were you there on the bus by that point? Fortunately, uh, I was. Uh, I I don't know if I should say fortunately or unfortunately. Unfortunately, I guess if we didn't we we, we didn't capture it. But fortunately, sometimes you don't want to be in that situation capturing mm-hmm. that because as a as a filmmaker and as a documentarian. If something like that blows up and your cameras are rolling, the first thing they're going to tell you to do is either destroy the, f- the film, which is, we were shooting on film back then because they would never want that to be released, or you can't use it and then you've got to bury it. And then they kind of started looking at you kind of you know, a little bit side- sideways. So on that particular bus ride, I'm, I'm glad we, didn't, we weren't on it and we didn't capture that because it puts you in a really – awkward position, right? Uh, like, what do you do with this stuff? Ultimately, the NBA owns it, but we have an agreement and we have an understanding that we will never use anything to harm the image of a teammate or, or, or a team. So for us, I'm glad we didn't capture anything so controversial that we were asked to destroy it. So, so to answer your question, I'm glad we weren't there. Andy, that's that's an incredible point you make that, that goes well beyond the bus moment, um, and and I think it's a good segue. I would love to get your thoughts on the the element of control with this project because we've in the media like you're always doing this dance of there is a you know a, a relationship between access and control and trust and all these things that come into you know like how much do you want to see and then if you see too much it can be problematic and with this project in particular. The unique part, obviously, is has been widely reported that the contract essentially was that Adam and Michael both had to say yes, give a thumbs up, and greenlight the project, and that was the reason it didn't happen for all these years. You've talked in other places about how you thought and hoped that that maybe the 20th anniversary would compel Michael to say let's do it, uh, and and then again, the mere scope of it just makes my head spin. The idea that, as you've said elsewhere, that you got 
looking at it here, I think it was was it a million uh, feet of footage that at the time was was a Guinness Book of World Record over 500 hours of original yep. content. I mean, that Andy, that's so much work, and and you're doing this high wire act in the field the entire time. So how did you balance? that element of the challenge and, and not by the way, with the, this backdrop, which would stress me out to no end, knowing that if the bulls didn't finish the job, if they didn't win the championship, uh, you know, you might not have nearly as good a project as you would have, you know, that you have now, how did you navigate those waters? Cause to me, that's a daily thing where you're just trying to make sure they don't pull the rug out from underneath you while also trying to do the best work you can possibly do. Yeah, there was a, a balancing act on a, on a lot of different areas in terms of access, right? How, when to push, when to back off. Um, how, how much do you focus on Michael? Because Michael is, is such an incredible just entity on his own. If you, if you just follow Michael, then you miss the Dennis Rodman story. And, you know, Scotty's got his issues with management and coming back from injury. So, and then Phil. Phil is a really interesting uh, subject also. So from a, from a crew standpoint, I had some help. I had, an, I had another producer who would show up from time to time, and he would do a lot of the dirty work sometimes that, that I didn't want to do in terms of maybe, you know, doing a fill interview in his office or uh, interviewing the mayor of the city of Chicago to get just the historical context of how big the bulls were to the city of Chicago. And, and at the same time, I've got to focus more on Michael because my relationship with him is the best, and he was more comfortable around me. And, and at the same time, the NBA is in my ear about how much money am I spending? You know, how many days am I on the road? <laughs> we, for? we heard you spend quite a bit, I, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you, you, you want to be you don't want to miss anything. Right. right and at, right. in the beginning, we didn't have the, the full blessing from Adam that we can show up at every game and shoot. OK, so it's it's yeah, it was a lot of juggling and trying to manage uh, storylines and and travel. And this is before we had videotape. So everything we shot was shot on film and the film had to be processed and had to be bagged and loaded on mags. It was, it was unbelievable how much logistical things we had to worry about. It was just on top of the storylines, but more importantly, I always tell the guys, guys, anything that we record, anything that you don't want us to record, you give me the cut sign or you give me the look. I, I pick up with guys when they were comfortable and we will right. stop rolling. And I always tell people, and there's no disrespect to you guys, but we're not the media. We're NBA sure. Entertainment, and we work for you. It's my pitch. We so this- work for you. So they had, the, they had the, the confidence knowing that, yeah, if we did capture something that they didn't want or, or record something that they didn't want, there was no way we're going we're gonna to use that in the documentary and make them look bad. So LeBron – has this now kind of um it's not nbae it is his own people who work for him and they've been around for a while going all the way back to when he was still here in cleveland they're there in la now where they just they're around and they they film things and they'll even be um like if, if i would have a side conversation with him that i didn't really want anybody to hear i'll look up eventually and his boom mic will be over on top of us um and so you're telling us already and and you wouldn't like you weren't able to do that nor would you have wanted to um but you said something that that really sparked my interest which was um when you're talking about you said something like when we decide to record something and so i wanted to know how did you make that call when would you decide to turn on the camera and how often was it on Pretty much if they gave us access to a practice, then you're in. And if you're in practice, you can shoot anything you want until a player waves you away or a coach waves you away. Uh, same thing on a plane. You go on the plane for plane rides and you walk on and everybody knows we have to do our jobs. We've got to get, we have to get shots of guys playing cards, hanging out, doing whatever they do on plane. So there's just an understanding if, we record if we give a, if we're given access we're going to roll camera and we're not going to be pushy we're going to try to be flies on the wall and once again if they don't want something recorded if you see some of our outtakes you see them wave us off and then we turn the camera away and we won't record it's the same today if i'm i was with the warriors for years and years just recording a lot of their behind the scenes championship runs and 
whatever Steve didn't want us to record, he would just say, hey, can you turn the cameras off for this particular portion of practice? Or Steph will just wave the camera away and say, hey, no, come back in a couple of minutes. It's the same applies today that we did back then. If we have access, you roll and then let the players decide what is acceptable or not. Andy, I wonder within all that, um, you know, you've, you've hinted at your relationship with Michael and, you know, and the more I've learned about that, the more it seems like a huge X factor in this whole thing, getting over the finish line. But once, you know, they win the title, once you then the clock starts in terms of, is this thing ever going to see the light of day? I wondered, did you in general just give Michael his space on the, just the idea of like, Hey Mike, are you ever going to let us do this thing? Did you guys have conversations throughout the years where if I was in your shoes and, and because you have a comfort level, like maybe you're just ribbing him a little bit, giving him a hard time. Like Mike, this is going to be great. Let's do it. I mean, how much you talk about knowing when to push and when to pull back. How did you handle that when it came to just trying to get him to green light it? Here's a, here's a story. I don't think I've ever told because Think about it, Mike, we got out in 98 after Michael hit that shot. We knew he had the holy grail of all sports documentaries. I mean, right. we couldn't ask for a better storybook ending. It's just ridiculous, right? We, we knew this was unbelievable. So in the middle of 98, um, I should say, in the middle of the, the playoff run, one of the owner's sons uh, or one of the owner's owners themselves, minority owners of the Bulls, had the great idea of shooting the entire playoff run in IMAX. So they had crews shooting behind the scenes just like we were back in 98. And Michael gave them permission to do that, and they also got permission to make their film first. So right. they made Michael Jordan to the max, which came out, I think, in 99. So um, that pretty much you know, made us make, put some distance between anything that we wanted to do with Michael pertaining to documentary. Well, of course, you know, as we were starting to think about it, I called up Michael one day, and I was, we were actually putting together loosely, just a loose representation of what we think his documentary would look like. It was a 90-minute documentary. And I remember we were doing it all on interviews we captured during the 98 season. But I felt at the time that we were taking uh, just a little bit too many liberties about what Michael really was thinking, like when we would show a shot, or, because this was, we had voiceover in our particular rough cut. And I called up Michael. I, I had his number back then, and I called up Michael. I was like, hey, man, we're, we're putting together like an, an, a doc, uh, just a, a rough doc of what we think your film could look like. I said, but I don't feel comfortable that we're doing you justice because I think we're paraphrasing what you would want to say. So could you give us like two hours where we can set up a place where we can interview you and, and get you on tape in your words, and then we can, we can cut something and, and show you what it could potentially be like? And he agreed. He agreed. So we built this sound stage in Chicago, made it look like a cigar lounge and like three cameras shooting. He showed up. He sat down for actually three hours, which was unbelievable that he that he did three hours. So what year so is got this, Andy? His, Real quick. Sorry. This was a this was a ninety. This was in two thousand. Okay. okay. Yep. So in two thousand, and so um, he sits down and then we we use that just to kind of rough cut art. So in the middle of rough cutting. Over the next six months, he decides to unretire and come back in 2001. Boom. That just blows up our project because now i got to leave everything and hit the road again for two years and follow him again. Right. So from 2001 to 2003, I'm on Michael's trail again in, in Washington. You know the story. He never made the playoffs. That left a bad taste in his mouth that he retired. That he left the game and never really got to the playoffs. And he just didn't want to have anything to do with any documentary talk. And this was like 2003 now. So we're five years away from 98. Right. Eventually he gets into uh, ownership. And from time to time, whenever I'd see Michael, I remember from like 2003 to 2010, I would say, hey, man, when are we going to do this doc? When are we going to do this doc? It got to the point where he would just say, I know you're going to ask. <laughs> At some point we will. And so after about 2010, I think, of, when did he get inducted? 2012 or whatever? Nine, the Hall of Fame? Was it I nine? think that was the last wow. time I mentioned to him. I saw him at the Hall of Fame, and I was like, this is my last chance to ask you. Are we doing this? And he just laughed and didn't say anything. <laughs> and so he got tired of me asking, and thank God Mike Tolan had the, whatever the, the magic potion that convinced him to do it. And just real quick before Joe hops in, I think what you're referencing there, Andy, is the meeting where Mike, you know, part of your team, meets with Estee Portnay and Curtis Polk, uh, Michael's associates, and 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 finally gets the the sign off right. 
Yes, that's the one. Yeah. I mean, she, by the way, I mean, she, she is, uh, you know, she is world renowned for saying no. Um, <laughs> yeah. how you, so how do you know that? How do you know? Uh, Effie? Yes. He, it begins with no. <laughs> yep, yep. Begins and ends with no. Um, you, listen, I know we have eight more episodes to go. And of course, if you know anything about the the Bulls and how they broke up and why and everything like that, then, I mean, you know that there's going to be um, a bunch of stuff coming about Jerry Krause. And so, um, and yet, like I said, th- through these two episodes already, we have seen that there's clearly a conflict. And so I, what I wanted to know is, as a documentarian, what it was like for you to watch this sort of open contempt for the general manager coming from Michael and Scotty. What was that like for you? When it was not comfortable, if you're around the players all the time, you pick up on conversations and you pick up on vibes. Pretty obvious from my vantage point, because I was really close with the team, that there was contempt on both sides to a certain degree. And it was palpable. You know, it really was. I mean, it was, that's no secret. A lot of the beat writers around Chicago knew it too. And so as a documentarian, I've got to try and pick up shots of Jerry Krause whenever I can and not make it look so obvious. So I remember I, I had a camera that I shot. It was a little Bolex 16-millimeter film camera that had a long lens that you could zoom in. And I remember I would always try to position myself to pick off shots of, of, of Jerry Krause with the players or by himself that could help tell the story. So, yeah, it was it was pretty evident when I was around him. Andy, I wonder, did he you talk about control? Uh, you know, he's smart enough to know the vibes and know the mood. And then, you know, I can't imagine he was thrilled about having, you know, a camera around all the time to possibly pick up on this stuff. Did he, like, what was the, the sort of interaction between your squad and, and him? Did he try to, to control the narrative at all through this process? He didn't. No, he didn't. This was Phil's. This was Phil's call, Phil yeah. control, access, and everything else. That's the one thing Phil had total control over. So once we got Phil, Phil's blessing, we were in. So staying along these lines, uh, Andy, you know, Michael and Scotty, um, for instance, the, there's a story um, that we were talking about before you came on that uh, that I published last week talking about uh, we went to many of the people who are actually in your documentary didn't know who you had talked to but but had a good guess and asked them what was it like to meet michael and scotty um i I was able to find him and ask him this the question just before the virus hit and and shut us all down um and his answer like he did it and he was he um knew he was helping us out by doing by answering the question but the answer was was pretty short he's just like yeah michael was pretty distant at the beginning um and, and as I talked to more people about what Scotty had to say, it became clear that their relationship is kind of on again, off again. And and so kind of getting back to what we've been talking about here, you know, Scotty has his surgery at the end of the summer um, sort of to be ornery and to, to, to stick it to the bulls. And Michael says – he said at the time and he says now that like, Scotty's being selfish, which of course Scotty didn't like. So what did you see? And I know we're going to see more as the season goes along, but what was, what were you, what was the vibe you were getting on the relationship between Scotty and Michael? I, I thought they were great. They had a, they had a, 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 a what do you call it? A complex relationship, yeah. but they, they loved each other. They, they loved the fact that they were both alpha males at Scotty thought he was probably at some point as good as Michael, you know, and, and especially maybe of course, from a defensive standpoint, Scotty was maybe even better because he could guard every position up to a probably a power forward. But Scotty just and Scotty wanted respect at the same time, right? So there's there's that there's that dynamic of yeah, he's my teammate. I'm one of the best players in the world. He's sucking up every bit of the oxygen in the room. Um, it's a hard thing when you're an alpha male and you are almost as good as the guy who's the, who's the, who's the goat. And how do you, how do you maneuver that? Right. How do you, how do you just manage that relationship? It's gotta be a difficult one, but I can tell you from, from all of my experiences, man, those guys love each other. There isn't another player in the entire world 
that MJ would rather go to, into battle with other than Scottie Pippen. And there's a lot of great players on the planet, but he trusts Scotty more than anybody else. Were they always, you know, kumbaya? No, no, not every, you know, backcourt or every relationship in the NBA is kumbaya. But boy, I tell you, they have unbelievable love and respect for each other, but it's, it's got its little issues. Well said, Andy. Uh, to finish that point up, and, and we'll we'll try to get you out of here, but this is fantastic stuff. Uh, I tell you what, watching last night, one of the many memorable moments, I'm sitting there watching Jerry Reinsdorf talk about Scotty's contract. And and honestly, I knew Scotty in general was under underpaid. I didn't know the specific context, and I love how you know you guys had the numbers there. You said that, that you know they showed all the stats. He was first in this category for the Bulls, second in that category. Incredible player sixth highest paid Bulls player at the time and 122nd highest paid player in the NBA. Now that obviously was the genesis of all the friction. He was not thrilled about his contract. So then, man, Reinsdorf's got the audacity to sit there in the interview and and admit that at the time he told Scotty that he thought his contract uh, was going to be too long, that it was not a good idea for him. But then once he signed that dotted line, he was not hearing anything about a renegotiation when uh, when Scotty and the Bulls took off. So that whole dynamic was wild. Um, I wonder, and this is a tough one to throw at you just because of, you know, you're talking about so much footage, so much time spent around this team. But for you and this human experience, uh, when did you kind of have a moment when you you essentially saw something through that lens that made you just, you know, open your eyes a little wider, look at your your coworkers and just shake your head and say, I can't believe that we're getting to see some of this stuff. I mean, I have to imagine you have one or two memories that, that even with all the great stuff that you guys got that, that stand out above the rest. It's, you know, it's really not even a, a moment that was even captured on film for the most part. It's, it's more that I had a great relationship with Michael and that even developed and we got even tighter. But I think there were two moments, if I can split it real fast. When Phil Phil called me into his office one day, and I didn't know why, but Phil never called me into his office. We just basically, you know, nodded at each other, and he'd give us access, yes or no, to shoot practice. And so he called me to his office, and I'm thinking, this is probably in March. You know, so we're really embedded at this point. But I know the playoffs are coming, and I know Phil likes to circle the wagons, right? And he brings he brings everybody in closer. So I'm thinking he's bringing me up there to tell me, hey, guys, I think it's time to, to, to go home. Oh, wow. So he brings me in, and he's like, um, hey, I'm really surprised, and I'm really happy to see the way the guys are comfortable around you, and you are comfortable around them. I can't believe the access they're giving you. And he says, that's, that's just unbelievable, and I'm glad for you for that. He says, but, and of course, here's the but, right? <laughs> he goes, there are things that are going to be said in the next couple of weeks that I don't want recorded. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I was hurt during the 1972-73 season, and I couldn't play. And I figured I had, I had to do something to be a part of the team. So I picked up a camera, and I started documenting behind the scenes with a little still camera of all the practice and trips and all these different things. And eventually I published a book about my, my, my year with the Knicks. And he said, but I remember taking a picture during the, the playoffs, excuse me, during the finals. And it was when Willis Reed, Reed injured his knee, and he was in the back, and the physician, the doctor, had to shoot him up with cortisone in his knee. And at the time when the doctor pushed the needle into his knee, I hit the shutter, and it went click. And they both looked up at me and went, no, you didn't. And I said, and he said, ever since that moment, I looked at their faces, and I realized I could never publish that picture. He said, I don't want you guys to capture something that should never be on anybody's image. So if there are times coming up that I want you to be out of practice, it's not personal. It's because there are things that I'm going to say I don't want to ever have on camera. Right. He said, well, you're welcome for everything else, but just going forward, these are my rules. And I was like, great. That's, I, to me, it made all the sense, but I was so relieved that he gave me the respect to bring me into his office and explain exactly what his motives were going to be like going into the playoffs. So you had no, uh, just to make sure I'm hearing you correctly, you had no uh, assurances even as late as March that, that you guys were going to be able to, to see this through in the playoffs. You, you, I mean, were you living that daily existence of thinking that, you know, this could be the day that they pull the plug on the project? 
yeah, you know, there's no contract, right? It was, right. It, was a, it was a loose agreement. You right. get access when we give it to you. So right. he could have said, guys, this is the playoffs now. You know, the, the, every game is, is just crucial. So we don't want you around as much or we don't want you around at all. And that, that was their prerogative. But when Phil said that they were so comfortable and the guys were, were, were just giving us stuff, Man, that was just like that was when I really breathed a huge sigh of relief. Sure, like, okay, Phil's Phil's on our side. He really is on our side. Right. So but the other time, real quickly, was when I met with Michael. I remember we were trying to get Michael away from the court. It was easy to get Michael around the game, around flights and practices. He was always available. He, he was great. But I always felt we wanted to show a side of Michael that we didn't get to see away from the court with his family. And I remember, I, and I actually talked, I saw Michael last night on Zoom, we had a meeting, and I, I recounted this story to him and a couple of other people in the Zoom meeting. I said, Michael, remember when I came up to you with a list and you looked at me like I was crazy. I said, These are, this is a list of things I think we need to capture before the playoffs start because it's just going to be too intense for, to get this stuff off the court. He looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, <laughs> The first thing was we want to get you at home, you know, with your family. I want to get you in a hotel room, just being by yourself, doing whatever you do, just life away from the game. And I said, I want to get you driving to the game. And, and, I, and the sixth thing I said, I need your phone number. Jordan didn't balk at any of the first five, but the six, he goes, why do you need my phone number? I said, because you're impossible to talk to alone. There's always somebody in your ear. There's always media. There's always somebody around. And I need to run things by you just to make sure we're, we're good. And, and if you're comfortable with this, he looked at me, he wrote down his number and he slid it, slid the piece of paper to me. When he did, when he did that, I knew I had the ultimate respect and trust from Michael because he doesn't give his number out to right. anybody. Right. And, and I knew that, okay, we're in good shape right now. Right. Do you still have that number? Nope. Five years ago, I tried it. Didn't didn't work. <laughs> it's it's asked him on the Zoom meeting last night. Come on. Yeah. What a Zoom. Yeah. It sounds just like my Zoom meetings. That's for sure. <laughs> so okay. So your brother was uh, an, a part of early Showtime Lakers, and your nephew, of course, was part of the Dynastic Warriors. Um, and you know, I've read about how. They will both try to say, oh, you know, we had it the way that, that Michael and the Bulls had it. And you try to explain to them that they that they didn't. And, um, you know, Sam and I have spent quite a bit of time around the Warriors. Um, and I think kind of watching Michael and what you have laid out in the documentary so far, we could say, yeah, it was different in, 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 in no small part because the Warriors were set up so differently. They had four stars, all of I mean, yes, Steph is a bigger star than Draymond, but but they are roughly equals, like within kind of the same general ballpark as far as like fandom and stardom. Um, whereas Michael was the face of the NBA, hard, cold stop. Um, LeBron though is has it different, and and he kind of walked. Uh, I mean, like he he became the face of the NBA, I guess, in a way that Jordan was and kind of assumed some some of the, some of the same footprint and some of the same pressure. And so I know you've spent a little bit, at least a little bit of time around LeBron from the, the Cavs Warriors finals. And I'm curious for your thoughts on this, comparing the media circus around those bulls with Michael uh, and whatever orbit that LeBron walks in. I don't think it's a comparison from a national standpoint in terms of how much how much media spotlight that the bulls were under every single day especially during that 97 98 season i mean literally if there's a scene that we're in atlanta and there's 2000 people lining the streets to watch the bulls walk from the hotel to the bus i've been around the Cavs. I've been around the Warriors. I've been with the Lakers. I was there in the magic era. I have never seen 2000 people line the streets to just watch guys walk from the bus to the hotel or the hotel to the bus. There are, there are fans running after the buses after we leave in Dallas, chasing about a hundred fans, just running, sprinting. It's I'm telling you, I've been with, embedded with the Bulls. I've been embedded with the Warriors. 
and I've been on flights, and there is nothing even close to what Steph and Clay and Draymond or, or are experienced or did experience compared to what Michael and the Bulls did. Now, maybe when Steph goes to China or if LeBron goes to China, that's a whole different ballgame because, you know, they own those markets. But, he, but, you, but I can even say Jordan globally was even a bigger star. I think, if, I, if I'm right, I think at the time, Michael had the highest Q rating of any star, and that was when Muhammad Ali was alive. Wow. When Pelé, I think Pelé is still alive. So Gretzky, you know, Elway at that time, he he was the biggest star in the world. Di, 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 what is it? Diego Maradona was is even behind Jordan. And I think if I'm correct, Jordan still has the highest Q rating of any athlete on the planet. What is it? Twenty two years later. So sorry, Clay. Sorry, Michael. I know you guys were in really incredible dynastic teams, but. <laughs> the evidence is going to speak for itself that Jordan was and his Bulls were just in a whole other stratosphere, man. I like this. It's getting personal with the Thompson family here. Uh, Andy, <laughs> let's let's get you out on this. I know we're here talking about Last Dance and the Bulls and Mike, um, and not to get into your, your business too much, but I'm dying to know, because you and I have run in the same circles for so long on the Warriors side of things, uh, the parallels here, you know, I just, I think it's so interesting. The idea that all these years later, you spent so much time around the Warriors who, again, had their dynasty and they were coached by a guy, you know, and Steve Kerr, who was was with you, you know, during that 97, 98 season, part of that that back end uh, Bulls, you know, three Pete. Um, do you you shot so much footage? You you had the access. I mean, what, if anything, can you share about down the road uh, how that might be? you know, kind of produced on the warrior side. Is there anything even rem- remotely close to, you know, a project of this scope and magnitude with the Warriors? Because the parallels are there. You know, Kevin Durant, we all think he's going to leave, and then he leaves, and that was the end for them. And it's not quite the same by any means as the Bulls, but, you know, are you uh, are you chipping away at anything on that front? Boy, Sam, that is a great question because five years, five finals, what they just did was – Wow, even the Bulls didn't do that, right? Right. And Steve being a part of two of two of those dynasties, which is really interesting. That's the the thread. That's the commonality that that those two dynasties have in common. But Steve was different from from Phil. For Steve, loved being around. I loved talking to Steve back in '98. He was the one go-to guy that if I ever needed a soundbite, Steve would would provide it. Never flinched when when we brought the cameras around. But he, I guess he, he took something that I guess he didn't like about that, and he applied it to the Warriors, where we didn't get that same type of access that we got okay. with the Bulls. We got sporadic when he would give us certain times during the regular season and you know, a time or two during the finals. But for the most part, Steve was a really private guy, and he didn't allow our cameras in nowhere even near what we had with the Bulls. So whatever we did with the, with the team, we had to do individually with the agreement of the players, spending time away from the game in their houses or whatever. So it's not going to even be close if we ever decide to do something or the, the, the Warriors ever decided to do something in three or four years as a documentary, then there's not going to be a lot of access. Right, this, right. This, it's going to be a lot of on-court. It will be more of a highlight-driven type of of documentary rather than a day in the life of following this team type of access. Well, listen to me, that, that just speaks even more highly of the work you guys were able to get done back in 97, 98. Uh, folks loved episodes one and two. I now have something to do every Sunday night. I've made it clear to my wife's not a big hoop fan, so she's not joining me for these viewings. Don't take that personally, Andy, but I told her like every Sunday night, next four weekends, uh, you know where I'm going to be. Uh, I got to get my kids involved at some point and, and kind of spark their basketball passion a little more than it is, but it's got to be fun for you to finally see it out. We cannot thank you enough for coming on. Listen, we're all, you know, we're all enjoying this together, Andy. If you want to come back, you know, uh, later on in the, uh, the season, feel free. We'd love to talk to you, but Job well done. Um, just enjoy it, soak it up, and uh, well deserved, man. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you. But let me ask you both a question before I leave, and you can't suck up because I know you know uh, Clay and Michael really well, Sam, especially you. What do you guys really think of it? Because we're at, we're as a production company, we really want to know. So, did it live up to expectations? I'll jump in and say here's where I'm at. I liked it a lot. Um, first of all, as somebody who 
you know, like most kids from my generation was a Michael, just, I was Michael obsessed. I did give you an idea. And I used to, uh, I used to photocopy every single magazine story that was ever written about Michael and put it into the same blue binder I had in my bedroom. And I had about 700 pages of Michael Jordan stuff. So I was a big wow. fan. And, wow. and, but even with me tracking it as closely as I did as a little guy, what I loved about it is that you, the way you guys filled in the gaps on the first two episodes, and and to be clear, that's all I've seen. I didn't have an advanced copy of the rest of them, so um, it's a fantastic foundation for what's to come. Because I saw some of the reaction on social media last night from some folks was like, "Well, you know, we knew a lot of this." Well, like you said earlier, you have to appeal to the mainstream audience, and that means you have to build the foundation for the story. And you guys did that in the first two episodes. And you you inserted uh, a little bit of conflict, the Jerry Krause chapter, that I think most mainstream folks had no clue about. And not that you're trying to sit here and, you know, make one person a hero and one person a villain, but, you know, that is part of storytelling. And and so Jerry, for now, is he's wearing the black hat. Um, and now you want to know what comes next on that front. I thought the Scotty stuff, for me, to answer your question was the most substantive and, and and enjoyable just in terms of the context around all the, the incredible footage you guys shot because I didn't know about um, you know his upbringing. I didn't know that he lived in a house with two folks in a wheelchair and the level of poverty that he faced and how that might have impacted his mentality on the contract situation. So that then informed the footage, right? So you see Scotty yeah. on the bus when he's pissed and now it's deep because now, you know, what you shot with your camera means more because somebody has told you what might be going through his mind. So I thought it was off to a fantastic start, and I, and I can't wait till next Sunday. I thought it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just okay. That's Joe for you, Andy. That's Joe. No, I loved it, of course. I, I, I thought it was great. And uh, we were saying before you came on, um, you know, here at my house, like – my nine-year-old, he's almost 10, and he knows what dad does for a living and kind of follows basketball a little, but not not even as much as his friends. He thought it was great. Um, my wife, same same category for sure, um, commented that it was great. And, you know, for me, like I said, I mean, I do know the story, not because I lived it. Um, I was a senior in high school in 1998. So I didn't, I mean, I... I grew up hating Jordan uh, because I grew up in Cleveland. So from the moment he hit that shot over Craig Elo, like, you know, I didn't care for him. Um, but then as I started to get into this line of work um, and, and being around these these athletes and then also covering it as a job, you begin to appreciate greatness. And right away, like that is just oozing. It's just oozing through with the interviews, um, the current stuff with Michael now, and then also just the footage from the from that time. Um, and just the, the shot that you had of him in that suit sitting in a basically like a, a folding chair. I don't even know where you guys were, but he was he was anguishing over something um, was awesome. And uh, and so it's 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 great. Uh, that we can get to, a chance to see this now or see it at all. And then, of course, like to somehow have this in your back pocket at a time where the entire sports world is gone <laughs> yeah. is uh, I, I, we couldn't be luckier. And so, yeah, so congratulations to you and to everybody that you've worked with on this. Um, you know, it's all right. You know, I guess it's worth watching. <laughs> Very good. Cool, I cool. to, to put a bow on that, Andy, the other thought that comes to mind for me is that um, I, the I think, you know, you and I have had countless conversations about what you do, what I do, and, and you have a, a really cool respect for the writers. And the part that I also dig about your guys' project is that it's a great reminder that uh, we talked about the access, we talked about control, and you have to have their trust, and, you, and you're not going to air things that they don't want aired. But you also – you know, uh, already in the first two episodes. And I think with a lot more to come, you're going to show the real stuff you're showing Michael. I mean, Michael's already been quoted as saying, people are going to think he's a bad guy after they watch this thing, you, the competitiveness. To, uh, what I love about showing that is that we need reminders in the industry because you know, that w what we try to do is to actually capture these players as people. So it's a great message to even the people that we constantly try to get cooperation from that there is a real value and, you know, take a deep breath. Don't be afraid to be authentic and real and trust us on the back end. You know, we're not going to make you look bad, but let's have some grittiness to the storytelling 
that I think the audience benefits from. So that for me is, is what I'm most fired up about going forward here. That's very true because remember, we didn't get a lot of access in the first two months. So if you thought that was a lot of access, wait right. for, for the last four months. That's when we really ramped it up and it's, it's really uh, uh, eye opening. Let me just leave it at that. Listen, man, you, like I said at the top, you're a wanted man. We're going to let you go. Um, you know, I don't mean to sound creepy. I think now that we know you're, you're doing zoom calls with Mike, you know, zooms doesn't, they don't have the best security. We might be hacking your zoom calls and trying to, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. I, I'm a little bit jealous here, but, um, be well, we hope the family is, is healthy and everybody's hanging in. Okay. And, and, uh, and this really is going to be a fun thing to help people carry through a, a really challenging time. So, Uh, Again, nice job, Andy, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Enjoy the rest.